This week on Plot Points Podcast, we answer a man named Percival's question, we discuss why it's good to be bad, and we admire persistence in ourselves and others. Percival! This is Plot Points Podcast. This is Plot Points Podcast. My name is Mark Sevy. I'm here with my co-host, Mary Claire Anderson. Hey there. And our producer slash engineer, Toby Walwork. Hello. And um, we are suffering a little bit under some heat, um, but it's also appropriate because it's the doldrums of the movie world right now. Um, a lot of films that wouldn't have stand- stood a chance at the beginning of the summer are being released. But a lot of faith-based stuff is also coming out, which is... Um, great market. I know it's hard to talk about God in terms of uh, commerciality, but everybody does. And uh, we're also uh, at Maya Newport Beach headquarters, and we'd like to thank uh, Mr. Frank Hafar and our good buddy Larry Porcelli for allowing us to use this venue because we had a problem with the other one. He came at the last minute, saved the day. Real, real hero here. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Larry. Um, so, how you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Yeah. Uh, everything, everything good uh, in in your worlds and stuff. Yeah, things are busy. Uh, like summer's coming to an end, but it's still and, busy. And you got. I, I was gonna say, and let's not forget again. You are planning a wedding. Yeah, that takes up a fair share <laughs> of my free time. I'm so not planning a wedding. I've got lots of free time. I'm watching a lot. <laughs> no, that's not true. But I'm not planning a wedding. That's true. But yeah. But on top of everything, planning a wedding as well, I would be uh, I'd be a wreck. So if you're yeah. you're handling it with grace and aplomb. Well, she, I appreciate not she's really, got but. some no she's got some help too which is good I mean that's mm-hmm. what family's for and they you know so how's Mike uh, handling it is he helping he's at all? no he's done nothing <laughs> so hey, so I, he's great he's on so behalf of right Mike now. I mean he picked out the ring he said find it a tuxedo what else do you need from the guy well, what if what if she she was maybe she was ready to propose and then he would have had to plan the wedding. So. Is that how that works? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Mark, uh, neither one of us really should be discussing anything to yeah. do with what Well, it reminds me a little bit of The Office where Pam and what's his, the Roy. old... Roy. Yeah, the... Mm-hmm. Er, the yeah, All the, he did, yeah, was set a date. Yeah. And pick the band. <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to we're gonna talk a little bit about what are we watching, what are we writing, uh, but let's talk about ri- uh, watching first. Who wants to, wants to jump in? Uh, watching this week... Uh, among other things, uh, but I'd like to talk most about it. I watched The Defenders mm-hmm. on Netflix... Uh, it was quite good. Uh, I really think it. Uh, I, I think it served all the main characters quite well. Now I remind think the audience the, who that who that. Yeah, the yeah. main character. This is part of the Marvel universe. So we've got Jessica Jones, we've got Luke Cage, we've got Daredevil, and we've got Iron Fist. And right now, think, all respective to Netflix. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and they've all had many. Well, wait, they, well, no, they've not had Daredevil series. Yeah, they're they're on. On. Well, yeah. it used to be on network television, right? No, no, no. Okay, but they've all. They're all. They've all had. A season, or in Daredevil's case, two seasons of uh, solo, mm-hmm. and this is where they all come together. And this is established in the comic books, and and some would say it was sort of the highlight of many of those characters' uh, runs. Uh, I think they're all quite well served, and in, in by the show, I thought some of the supporting characters were brought in really just to uh, refresh our memory that they still exist. 
Uh, like Luke Cage with Ru- yeah, Luke, Rosario, Rosario Dawson. Dawson's character. But doesn't she also yeah, cross Ros- over to Iron Fist? She's actually uh, she's a thread that runs through all of them, which is which is quite interesting. Oh, and just mm-hmm. yeah, just and they do actually. It's really small. It's done real small, but it was really nice touch because I think, especially when we have superheroes that we're trying to put in a a, a real world environment, is let's not give short shrift to human non superheroes. Mm-hmm. She's a hero. She's a heroine. She's a nurse. She's patched them all up. Mm-hmm. She keeps them all going. Just when you really just want to, you know, just say F it and go home, she keeps going. And if you're impervious to bullets or, you know, like a, a man without fear, so yeah. to speak, sure, it's your job. You know, if you're bulletproof, you should be out there doing good. But if you're a nurse, uh, you know, you can take the weekends off and get, get off those pins. But she doesn't. And and they do mention it briefly. Uh, I, 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 I wish it was with one of the primary characters instead but um oh, I, I thought that was done well that's it's, a good it's point. if you if you like any of the marvel stuff you will enjoy this i don't know if it'll become anybody's favorite because you've already got your favorite mm-hmm. um i i do like that they 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 took some of the issues from iron fist as far as as he did not really connect well with the audience rather than retcon it and say no oh, no he's cool man no they they do sort of show no he is a person who's trying to grow into uh, the responsibilities thrust upon him. And I thought they did that quite fairly. Like, you're not going to hate him by the end of this. Oh, and you might not have liked him at the end of the first one. I, I just thought he was, I, I thought he was too flawed. And I didn't feel that I needed to see him be redeemed. But within the, within the Defenders thing, I thought they addressed that quite well. Very, very specifically, someone like my um, ambivalence. Mm-hmm. I think they addressed my ambivalence quite well. And I, I did appreciate that it, it, it almost felt like they made him that way on purpose. Which I, I don't believe they did, but it, it's quite enjoyable. Yeah, cool. Great. Um, so I'm really late to this, but um, I just started, just started to watch Big Little Lies um, on HBO. I've had like my mother, one of my best friends, like, "Are you watching Big Little Lies? Are you watching Big Little Lies?" And I'm like, "I'll get there." I like I don't like to jump on a band, bandwagon early. I like to read like every review, wait for the series to finish, see what's coming down for the Emmy nominations, and then I'm like usually in. And so like I need a motivator, and usually it's an award show, like. This year for the Oscars, I watched all nine Best Picture nominees in one weekend. Um, it was a weird weekend, but um, so um, so the setup is really like it takes place in Monterey um, about these five sort of it centers around five women, all mothers. Most most are married or remarried with children, starting at the same school in first grade, and there's kind of like murder afoot and they foreshadowed uh to it and i i I really i thought it was really really well done like they're really dynamic women who are kind of truthful in their struggles and the way that they're communicating with one another and i uh, you know a lot of times i was like yeah that's really how women talk to one one another i thought it was really really relatable and um and i thought it asked a lot of interesting questions too about kind of what it means to be a parent how do you successfully mother can one do it better than the other how much do our children really need us and who are we um you know if our kids don't define us and so i was I'm very here for it, so I'll it's check excellent. it out because I checked out another one of your recommendations, which was Ozark, which I really mm-hmm. liked, and um, probably going to continue to watch that. And but the movie that I really enjoyed this week was The Founder, about uh, Ray Kroc and the founding of McDonald's, which was a, for for me an eye opener. I didn't realize, um, and I don't know how true the story is, but um, but it's almost. I think we've talked about it. It's almost like two movies. There's a first half, like a good Ray Kroc in the first half, and kind of a shitty Ray Kroc in the <laughs> second half. And I don't know which is true or if both are true or why they did it that way. 
Um, did any yeah, I thought when I when I watched that movie, I thought it was really well written. Like I remember thought thinking the structure was well done. Um, but I also was sort of like I don't know what to take away from mm-hmm. this. Yeah, what is sort of the, what are they trying to say? Like what's the theme here? I thought that they missed that a little bit because I think they were they were trying to say a lot about this character and a lot about his life. But it's like yeah, really is he. You know, should we reward him for his diligence, his ingenuity, um, or should we hate him for what he did to the original, you know, McDonald brothers? Um, and so I don't think they ever really decided that. And um, and so it was, it did feel kind of like two different stories. So Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think with, with uh, anything that's adapted from a true story or is you, you run afoul of, of the, the, the framing mechanism of a film, which is a 90-minute to two-hour mm-hmm. chunk, where we have to tell a condensed story that has uh, accessibility, sort of universal truth, that kind of thing, is, is true to the history of, of, in this case, Ray Kroc, the man. But, um, but we, also, we also sometimes, uh, you know, you focus on these, this period of his life, which, which with this would be sort of like the rise, the rise of, of McDonald's. It was a, it was a longer like a, period, I felt like. Yeah? A longer period I mean, yeah, about, of about, his life. About how long does it take, take place over the course of? Probably. Probably twenty years. Yeah, probably. Yeah, if not yeah. longer. Yeah, and and then of course the the drawback to that is unless it unless it finishes with, uh, you know, your main character's death, you sort of want to mention that something happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like lots of movies do that, where it they fades did, to black and, and then they do a little card that they, says, yeah, they do yeah, the they cute do. cards. Yeah, yeah. but the, what Mary Claire's suggesting is that there's no clear. You don't usually feel one way or the other about a character, and you didn't. You didn't know. You know, if he was a, because he didn't seem like a victim of circumstance. He seemed like he inge- he engineered. To me, the first half of the film was about Ray Kroc, and the second half of the film was about McDonald's, and it wasn't so much about him all the way through. So, um, anyway, it's a good movie. I enjoyed it, and I love Michael Keaton anyway. So, uh, and we should yep. also talk a little bit about what we're writing. Although um, I, it sounded like earlier that I'm the only one that's really doing any writing. Are you guys working on anything at all? Or thinking, uh, gestating, incubating. I would definitely say I'm in the I'm in a gestating, incubating thing, which was inspired by a conversation we had about uh, fixed location, mm. uh, limited location, limited location yeah. concept. Because I thought I, I like the notion of just really setting that out as a, uh, as a as a challenge to myself. So I was thinking about something that takes place in a limited location, but then I I kind of played around with it a little bit. Then uh, I had an idea based on uh, this is this is like a bad thing that I do to myself a lot. Uh, I heard about a movie that I would really like to see, uh, and then, but I haven't seen it. But when I heard about that movie, I thought, oh, that'd be interesting as a location for a thing. And so mm-hmm. I had this other idea for another story that could happen in a similar, not in that same world, but like, oh, it happens out in the jungle? Uh, what if I had an idea that happens out in the jungle? So then I came up with this really, uh, really, I was really excited. Great idea. Then I realized the idea I came up with was called The Thing. <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately, a few people have already heard of it, yeah. so I, it's a tough yeah. sell. Tough sell. Oh, uh, well. And um, so at least thinking about writing is better than, and you know, I mean. Oh, you, and I am I just stating something writing. that after, after I just realized I came up with, what if I came up with the thing only 3% different? Then I came up with something much well, different. The thing that was, works. Yeah, the thing was not, I mean, that wasn't the first time that that sort of thing has ever been seen. There's a lot of mythology that talks about shapeshifters, yep. and so 
Uh, you doing anything, MC? I know you're busy. Uh, no, I'm but... thinking a lot about writing, too. Um, it just is always a matter of sitting down and actually doing it. And uh, I've, I've talked about this a few times, but for me, it, like, I, I really, like, I need hours and hours to really get kind of what I need out on, on the page. And so, yeah, I've just been, you know, ultimately focused on a few other things. But I think um, I'll get there because I always feel it's one of those things. It's like, it's even like for exercise. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But once you do it, it's like, okay, then. Yeah. I don't hate it. Like yeah. it felt like I feel much better after I do it. Well, you're still you're in class and you're doing the critiques and stuff, so you're keeping your hand in, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, Mark, you you talked about how um, with with your you're, do, you're often doing research, like on your uh, your Revolutionary right. War project. Absolutely. So there's so I, I think there's a I, I hate I hate the idea of giving people a, a great excuse, but I think it merits repeating that writing is not the act of sitting down at the keyboard, and and clickety clack click clack but that has to be done you know like we mm-hmm. can do a lot of research we can do a lot of thinking i can i can i can i can break a scene in my car while i'm stuck in traffic and do both the voices and i have the earbud in so people think i'm on the phone and not a crazy person but i'm not talking to anybody um but but you know if if you are you know the, the writing is not just a physical act of, of typing no it's a pro- it's a it's a multi-level activity but people put off everything except the actual activity of writing to do other things. And it's much easier. I would much rather sit and go through Google and YouTube and watch all the cool videos and stuff. But at some point you just have to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know personally I've, I've, I've tried to shortcut that part out of it. Like I'm like, uh, I bought three or four different voice Mm -hmm. to text, you know, like if I just tell it the story, it'll type it for me and I won't have to do it. And uh, and uh, and that's the those are the people you bump into a lot are the people that are like hey I've got some really great ideas maybe we could collaborate and what they mean is can you take can you dictation yeah. and you say sure how much would you like to pay for that well no we'll be partners it'll be my idea you just type I it don't. onto the paper and make it make sense and I that's get that it's time all the time I just tell people go away I yeah. just I just only want to hear it so um, for myself for my part i've been i haven't actually been working on anything but the revolutionary war script from a script perspective but toby shamed me uh publicly uh on the podcast into getting back to my book and so i've been working on a proposal actually i'm finished with it and it is i actually had no idea what i was doing when i wrote my first proposal and now i'm just convinced it's the hardest thing in the world to do so it is i mean i'm talking about marketing and uh, competitive titles and mm-hmm. just it's insane Wait, you, i'm sorry what's competitive titles like save the cat oh like other books in yeah, that in your sp- in the will, space right and you have to provide i thought you meant like you had to come up with a title better, that made yeah, it sound way better, better. Yeah. Like, <laughs> way better than that sitfield book no i've got Mark like Seth. six titles for my book i'm probably going to drive the publishers <laughs> or agents wild but um no you come up with competitive titles and what Market people. Mm-hmm. I think in nonfiction, what people are looking for is the niche, the niche, the niche, whatever it is. Uh, and so you have to figure out your market, your niche. You have to also say what competes in my niche or niche. I feel like so they don't have to help with that. Well, not on a proposal. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> they want to, you know, they want to know. They want to know. They actually want to know. Uh, you know, like I had a publisher ask for the proposal, and he came back and said, um, "Send me the proposal." It has to be double-spaced. You know, it's all these kind of format rules. But he also said, list where your f- venues would be for um, seminars. <laughs> and I, I fortunately have a lot of those because yeah. I teach and yeah. we do uh, – and I talk at a lot of the classes. But 
it, it, they're asking me, they're asking, how am I going to sell, how are you going to help me sell your book? And so it's a lot more marketing or business than I thought. I know I have friends that have been in bands and in the music industry. And when you were, I mean, right now there's a huge sort of self distribution model revolution, but when you're approaching a, a label or anybody, they are they're asking the same kind of mm. questions. They're like, you know, yeah, it's one thing if you can deliver this album or in your case this book, but you're gonna tour to support it, right? Because that's how we know we and sell how many radio shows we sell your books. Radio, and that, yeah, right. it's funny because when you talked about venues, I'm like, just name the big four cities and be like, uh, New York, Houston, Chicago, LA, Nashville, Seattle, Nashville. No, Nashville. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's nice to go. But but Austin. you mean you mean more like sort of venues like, well, like they colleges. Know, yeah, and, they wanna know, am I going to if we publish this book how are you going to promote it through on-the-ground efforts? Mm-hmm. And so, again, like I said, thankfully, yeah. OC Screenwriters has 500 members and a, and a mailing list of 3, Maybe you can 000. get that guy that got the Microsoft Zune tattoo to get your book tattooed <laughs> onto an unmentionable <laughs> part. Of, he's, he's kind of a big fella. He's got room. So you yeah, could okay. get, you know. So buy marketing space on that yeah. guy. Yeah. Although, actually, if anyone listening has a body part they'd like to tattoo Mark's book on, just get in touch with yeah, us. Yeah, no, don't. Thank you. <laughs> don't, send, don't send us pictures. You can send me pictures if you want to. But um, No, no, no. Uh, anyway, so that, that, that consumed my week, and then uh, my mom is ill, and so it was, I was at the hospital a lot this, week, this past week, so I didn't really get a chance. My desk is, was packed with stuff when I finally got the chance to sit down. So. And it's hard, it's hard to write when you're in an emotional state. But I, I kind of tapped back into my band days when my girlfriend was an alcoholic whore. And okay. uh, he, nice girl, loved yeah. her to death, but she used to get drunk, and I'd find her out on the cars of uh, other people passed out. Oh, well, that's just inappropriate. She's going to pass out in anyone's car. Yeah. She, no, your, she would, don't forget whose car you came here in, Missy, before you go passing out <laughs> on someone else's car. Yeah, she stays to find I her. I am so alone they in my life. They come in and say, Mark, uh, Judy's out on the car. She's, uh, her Wait, skirt's up to her. just name check the skirt. I know. No, no. We're going to take that she, out. She's never going to hear this. So. <laughs> she knows what she is. I mean, she might be passed out on the hood of a car if someone that listens to podcasts, yeah, Mark. I think right. we should say. Uh, uh, anyway, her name is not Judy. Uh, <laughs> but it is. I didn't yeah. say her last name. <laughs> Oh great! So, how many been. Judys are in your past? I, you don't. You don't know. I'm no, not going to. No, say. I don't. And I'm not going to find out. But but uh, anyway, so I I had to go on stage feeling very emotional at times about this whole my whole relationship with her because it's very volatile, and you just go on and you do what you have to do. So yeah. that's kind of that's kind of you, you. The thing is, you realize if you don't do it, it's going to fuck up your life even further. So uh, anyway. yeah, I mean, with with anything, and obviously not to minimize the things you're going through with your mom, but obviously we have to remember that. Any of these events are, uh, are, are, are temporary, yeah, transitory. Uh, transitory, and it's how we react and, and, and move away from them. The, you know, they can affect our whole lives, but they won't be going on for our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and Judy, if you're out there someplace, I hope you, uh, Judy, I uh, love- I hope you got some help. Mark thinks it's just hilarious. <laughs> we had a gr- it, was a, it was one of the more fun times in my life and emotional. So. But, uh, and again, obviously, not, not, not to minimize what's going on with your mom, but obviously we, we wish her the best. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Yeah, you guys have expressed that. And I'm not doing well with it, but um, I'm doing the best I can manage. I'm an, I'm an Italian mama's boy, and uh, this is a person I cannot replace in my life. So, um, Okay, well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> let's move on to the feature uh, that I'm going to talk about this week. Another happy note. Yeah. <laughs> what? Is? That we're talking about? Oh, it just hit. It I'm trying to set you up. This is me being like a smooth DJ I kind see. of guy. I'm you are totally a smooth DJ. You're a smooth operator. That's true. Um, 
So last podcast, um, we profiled Thomas Harris and his great villain, Hannibal Lecter. And in my opinion, and the opinion of many, without a great villain, you don't have a great story. And specifically, I want to talk about that because I promised to talk about that, but also because I think it's important from a writing standpoint to understand just how important a villain is. Um, why? Why are villains so so necessary? And uh, unfortunately, Toby already talked about this when we were in the parking lot waiting for the uh, for the thing. But, but no one else was there. But a villain defines your hero and your story um, in the most in most cases. And um, I I think the villain sets the stakes. So if you have a great villain. Usually that villain has an agenda. The hero or heroine is going to interfere with that agenda. And so if A, is, if a isn't defeated, then something bad is going to happen. And that's, that's important in a script. That's where a lot of scripts uh, fail. And the villain can be internal or external. But usually, like if you're talking about a guy who's fighting alcoholism, it's typically internalized. But usually there's an external version of that villain too. So... In the case of uh, Sonnets of the Lambs, I, came, I, I see at least three villains in there, and we're going to talk about them. Um, without a villain, I just don't think you, would, you have a story. And so a lot of times in class when I'm talking to my students about their work, um, and now the students who have been through my class for a couple semesters are also seeing this, we're identifying that the villain is the issue. Um, and so we always try to make... And, I, I think Mary Claire can attest to this. Every time somebody's script is failing, it's because they can't identify the mm -hmm. the villain, right? I mean, that's... yeah, I mean because the the villain really provides that. You mentioned this, but the opposition. I mean, it will makes sort of the protagonist's physical and psychological journey even more meaningful. I think overall, we are we are made our best by our struggle. Sure. And in a movie, I the struggle is against something a baddie, right. you know, whatever. Right. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, and you, you really have to you know, do the implementation of the villain ahead of time. You, you really have to think it through because you can write a scene, you can write an intro scene, but it's vacuous. It's, 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 it's really fluff if you don't have a villain attached to it. Um, people who, don't, who haven't finished scripts don't understand this, but every moment you write in a script is pointing to the ending, and every moment you write has something to do with the hero, the villain, and the stakes. And so... You, it's almost impossible to write a script without knowing some of that ahead of time. And I attest to the fact that I have a bunch of 30-page wonders in my, in my, mm -hmm. my computer that haven't gone anywhere because I couldn't figure those elements out. Um, I have this saying, uh, the villain moves at night, meaning that the villain is in place long before the hero or heroine become aware of them. Hannibal and Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs are killers way before anybody from the FBI notices them, and certainly years before Clarice Starling is even an agent. They're brilliantly used to move both plot and character forward. Clarice's own ego forms a third villain, again, something that has been in place for years, which combined with external villains to make the movie so effective. Um, the more villains, the more better. No, I'm not a, really probably no. not true. No, yeah, no, no. no. Okay. Not in the Spider-Man franchise. Okay. I knew you were going to mention that, Spider-Man 3. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, how do we make a villain work most efficiently? I say scripts are not really composed of scenes, but scene sequences. Like building blocks in a toy construction set. Put enough scenes together and you have a sequence. Sequences lead to tentpoles. Tentpoles create plot and character and move the script forward. But how does the villain play into that? Uh, okay, so this is going to be a little difficult. I'm going to put these images up on the show notes. You guys can take a look at them if you're listening. Um, but and I can just tell you right now, I'm looking at the show notes. I'm looking at these graphics, and you're going to want to check these out because this is uh, – I mean, this is good stuff. Good. This is oh, thank good you. stuff. 
Yeah, Vizio. I like Vizio. That's what I created them in. So. Oh, I didn't mean that. I mean, <laughs> they look nice, but I just mean like the content is <laughs> yeah. solid. So, and, and uh, there's some pretty colors. Well, they used. They, yeah, they are on my computer screen. Too bad I didn't print them that way. So imagine you have three funnels that pour into a can. Um, for any situation, you can use one funnel, any two combined, or all three at once. Mark those funnels: Lecter, Buffalo Bill, and Clarissa's ego. You can also think of these three villains as a Venn diagram, you know, the kind where the circles are interlinked and in the middle they touch. Uh, now the fun begins. Combine any two or all three and create a scene. Once that scene is created, put it in the script and create another one using a different combination of any type of villain. The goal is the temple you're aiming for, whether it's Act 1, Act 2, or Act 3. If you follow my system of writing, you're always heading for the end of one act and the beginning of another. I can't get any more specific than that until you take my class or my book comes out, but that's the, that's the goal. But again, you simply are using combinations of villains to create a situation that the hero or heroine must resolve. So um, let's, let, me, let me walk through um, some of the, let's, uh, a real-world uh, example of this. But uh, let's talk about Clarissa's ego in case anybody disagrees with me. I think everything is ego-based in, in most, most movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Crawford mentions it in his talk with her, although he doesn't directly say the word ego. He does say that she's first in her class, which is code for you're driven. Yes. He also warns her not to let Hannibal in her head. Uh, this, again, is an indication of ego because Clarice does, in fact, allow Hannibal in her head, thinking that she, she can, can handle it. Right. Yeah. So she is, she is ego driven, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We all have healthy yeah. egos. That's what makes us go. Um, Lecter sees this ambition and even directly tells her he sees it um, and then and manipulates her and she still doesn't hear, heed the warning, um, which, is, which is just wonderful. Yeah. So And it's Buffalo Bill combined with Lecter, those are the two villains there, that really create the opportunity in the first place. Remember the villain moves at night, Jack Crawford sends her to question Lecter, that's the villains at work and then the, the other combinations. With Lecter, Clarice initially fails, but Lecter calls her back and then another scene is built from that from the villains. Lecter gives her a hint, a clue, um, as amends for Mig's rudeness, which is another scene. So if you look at the script, you go from her at the FBI headquarters to her with Hannibal to Mig's uh, mm-hmm. throwing his uh, bodily fluids on her to Lecter giving her a hint. All of those are driven by the villains. All of those are because the villains exist and there's an agenda for the villain. By the way, if the hero has stakes, the villain has stakes. Something's at stake for these villains, too. In the case of Buffalo Bill, it's life and death. Yeah. Because if he's caught, he's probably going to be. Now, if I can, on that point, I think that's a a great point to make. If we just make our villain crazy, then our villain is not interesting. Because if if they don't have, within their own internal logic, a rationale for why they do what they do, then they become compelling and interesting. Mm -hmm. But if it's just pure randomness, it's a different kind of scary, but it means you don't have a villain. Right. Well, I I guess it could be. I mean, it's it's maybe that if that worldview is chaos, like this is like I want to create that type of chaos because I'm crazy. But I know what you're saying. um, Because I think a lot of times people talk about the Joker and he has that that type of worldview um, in terms of, you know, he just wants to see the world burn um, because he thinks the world is irredeemable. Um, But if you're just crazy and nobody knows kind of why you're doing what you're doing, like it's maybe less... Sorry. I mean, yeah, not 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 to derail it, but w- within this, uh, like Jason from the Friday the Thirteenth movies, is he really a villain? Mm-hmm. He's those char- those villains are more of a fi- force of nature. Yeah. It's like fighting a hurricane. Yeah, but they have to do with. So yes, he is a villain, but he's a he's not a villain with a specific agenda necessarily. Like yeah. a, like a hurricane isn't a, a Sharknado. 
you know that there's no there's not a villain there's, there's yeah. not a, it's a force of nature so uh, by the way, but I, came I think up with I think we might all be the villains in Sharknado, <laughs> but I'm I'm not going to get into why. <laughs> so anyway, so you you keep on adding um, the villains together to create a scene, and um, that scene becomes part of a sequence, and that sequence leads to temples. And you can look at um, Silence of the Lambs, and if you really look at it scene by scene and add the the combination of villains, you're going to get exactly what you're looking for, which is a very compelling forward-moving uh, uh, narrative. Um, so I think that uh, villains are, you know, obviously um, of primary importance. And when you think of the villain as moving, I, I, you kind of got to love your villain because the villain is a character who is perfectly in balance. No villain or very few villains in the world say, gee, I wish I hadn't done that. And But heroes are the kind of the spoil sports they're kind of like walking in they're the guy in class who used to tell on you uh you know heroes are the people who used to say eh, he's passing notes and you you want but really and truly the we we celebrate villains i mean hannibal lecter is a is an anti-hero as opposed to a true yeah. villain these days but um initially he was a villain he had his own agenda he wanted to escape from prison he knew what buffalo bill was doing uh and clarissa's ego fed into that and of course it it almost ended badly for her. So again, the idea is the diagrams and the Venn diagram are are meant to just sh illustrate a point. Um, if you guys can think of any other examples of uh, combinations of villains or the, your favorite villains, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, just off the top of my head, um, regarding like I, I love I love villains, but I also know that we're uh, we we run into um, the problem is sometimes people make their villains. Sort of too. They have too much time with their. It's 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 easy to spend a lot of time with your villain. They're very interesting because you can make them really interesting. And of course, goody, goody, goody mm -hmm. protagonist. They're sort of either looking to restore or maintain the status quo, and villains are looking to initiate some sort of change. Right. One of the pitfalls, perhaps, of some of the Spider-Man movies was once we know who Spider-Man is, and Spider-Man doesn't change a huge amount throughout the arc. I'll talk about the first three films certainly because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's long enough ago. Spider-Man is a constant. We know he's Spider-Man. He's bitching. He's great. He delivers pizza. He loses wedding rings. He's fantastic. Let's spend some time introducing these bad guys. Mm -hmm. And then not being confident in this, well, let's have some more bad guys. And let's make, let's make these bad guys sympathetic. He doesn't want to be a bad guy. He wants to be a this. And you're like, that's not what yeah. I came for. I need to know good and evil. And I need to know that there's texture. But you can give a character uh, the inner conflict. But yeah, don't it, give me the inner conflict because mm -hmm. I I came here to watch your story. Yeah, it just becomes it, scripts are not meant to be scripts are meant to be focused, and if you have too many villains, too many heroes, too many that's why the defenders for me the first episode was a lot of there was a lot of cutting back and forth. Yeah, it was yeah. very but it's necessary to set up the world. But that's what happens when you have to do something like that. I mean, actually, it's, that's a great point with the defenders. I think. Uh, almost to its detriment, it was very like, let's not establish an alpha. Nobody is the head of the defenders. Mm. And um, I don't know who that would be anyway, right? Well, yeah, but but you could just decide. You could just decide, we're going to make Jessica Jones the head of the defenders because she's probably the smartest. But, Things like that. Yeah. But but you can't do that because then everybody would feel slighted for right. whoever their favorite was. Right, and, and so, but, but then you do run afoul of that thing where, the, well, there's too many characters that are all equal. Mm -hmm. So how do we established and you know but certain shows like that you do kind of watch it thinking i like this part but i want my favorite person to come back 
but mm. within the, within the dynamic of that show and, and other movies, not not making an alpha is uh, yeah, you it's a choice. You just can't. Uh, how about a, how about you, MC? You got a know. favorite villain? Um, yeah, two? I have a few. I mean, I think a lot of times the villain does represent you know what the hero or protagonist fears the most. You know, there's sort of that diametric opposition, opposition mm-hmm. um, of one another. And as I was researching villains last night, I mean, a lot of good ones came up, but I do think, and we've watched this movie a few times for class, but in Die Hard, when you talk about mm. Hans Gruber, and that's another perfect example of coming in late with the villain. Like, that plan has been in motion for probably, like, the past year. You know, it's a very, like... Um, you know, sophisticated plot that they're taking yeah. over, you know, the building um, and are really anticipating the response at every step. But the one thing that they're not anticipating is, um, you know, John McClane. And it's funny, like, I've studied Die Hard in, uh, in school as well. And that was, you know, and it really was the hero versus the villain. And John, you know, Hans in German is, is John, you know. <laughs> like, and so, I yeah. mean, it really is like they're the inverse of one another. Um, and, you know, believe in two you know, different, different world views um, and are two very, very different men and are directly in opposition the entire time and so um so he i think he's he's a great villain and we talk about him all the time yeah and, and i think diehard's a great example for that kind of uh dialogue is because they do make mclean he has facets and he has texture but hans gruber is fascinating mm-hmm. and you you want to know i mean if they made that film now not just kept recycling it but if they made that film now hans gruber would probably get the spinoff he would become the anti-hero, much like Hannibal Lecter, where it's like, this guy's really fascinating and he's textured. And also he's kind of cultured and refined, which we sort of, we, we like on, an, on another level as well. But um, yeah, I think, I think Hans Gruber is a great example. I, I was going to suggest um, Mr. Glass from mm-hmm. Unbreakable because... Another Mr. Bruce Willis film? Another, it's, it's, <laughs> we just love Bruce. Bruce, get in touch. It's a little bit underrated, I think. But I, what I, I, do, I, I didn't love Unbreakable. Maybe I want to watch it again, though. That was if I had to break that film down in class, and so I like I had to watch it like fifty times um, to go kind of shot by shot through it, and it's fascinating in terms yeah. of the breakdown. I mean, really well yeah. done. Oh, I'd love if, to see that. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, if even if it doesn't work for you, and that's legitimate, that's a thing. We all respond. There's there's so many aspects of what it does. I mean, it's like slavishly observing uh, Joseph Campbell's stuff mm-hmm. and all that. It's like. With with just enough of a patina to take the edge off, so you don't think you're watching a lecture. But one of the things I thought was fascinating, and I saw it with like three of my buddies, we're all very diehard comic book nerdy geeky. So we're like, we had big issues with the quality of some of the artwork. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh no, that's not good. That's not that, that's a total. That's not even Silver Age. What the what the get? Damn it! But uh, but the definition of of Mr. Glass as a character who quite literally his his main story is that he's mm-hmm. looking to define himself by revealing the 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 hero mm-hmm. because he knows he's not the hero. He he's the main character in his life, he's the hero of his life story, mm-hmm. but everything he does, all of the diabolicals and the despicables are to reveal the hero. Mm-hmm. Which is why everything that he's doing is in his mind justified. Absolutely. And that's fascinating. Well, and like and no end, villain is no villain feels unjustified. Right. Every villain feels justified and that's yeah. that's why they're failed, failed heroes is because they they have taken that hero test and failed. Especially in a in 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 the current world where, you know, opinion and fact have become the same thing. The people who disagree with us on any subject, they are the hero of their belief. Right. And, and, and Mr. They're Glass the is the hero of, of his... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and, there's, uh, and they might be there's wrong. There's no doubt that... <clears throat> I mean, I've been writing for a long time and watching film, and I think the, the villain, you know, just is the most amazing construct. And you, you don't have to look at anything modern. You can look back in Shakespeare... Because uh, Sons of Anarchy is based in Hamlet, 
And um, the Ron Perlman character is the uncle who kills the father of the main character, who's Hamlet. Um, and so, I mean, you, you know, Shakespeare knew if Shakespeare yeah. was alive today, he'd be David E. Kelly. He'd be he'd be writing a lot of really <laughs> good um, television, I think. Or, or the Lion King. I mean, that's the concept for that. Yeah, too. absolutely. So, <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, we could talk villains for well, hours. And actually, what I was I was going to kind of jump on this <clears throat> and make it all about me. I'm terrible about writing villains. You are because you I are. write. I agree because my con- my my villains are always they're internalized. The main character yeah. internalized. Right. It's always like when, when you were saying about like if it's an alcoholic or if it's a guy that just can't get out of his own way. And how much of that is my own personal baggage? <laughs> Tune in next week. But um, because to me, I, I find that like creating a villain is. It's almost. I, I'm just afraid of doing it cartoonishly, like Dick Dastardly from the comic cartoons. It's like if your if your villain is this guy that kind of trolls his mustache and says, "I like to do this because I'm bad," unless they're funny, it's you're screwed. No, you, you, you're right. your villain has to think they're the good guy. Yeah. yeah, but you can be cartoonish with anything in a script. Yeah, and so you you just have to elevate. You have to raise your game. I mean, if you look at Happen Leonard, which is a, a, a was a great recommendation, something you are a fan of. Um, that that would not have worked without the the Hap and Leonard being the villains of their own story, but also having a they had two there were two other villains in that story yeah. that definitely created uh, well actually three if you count uh, what's her name and then the other two the yeah. crazy I love that well, crazy soldier one. I think he's called soldier, soldier the, yeah. the main villain he is kind of cartoony because he's like oh no I just want what I want and I will smash and grab to get is that it. the one was that the one with the girlfriend. Yet he embraced all of those negatives I just said about villains because he is cartoonishly villainous. But he also believes, I mean, kind of like in a sociopathic way. He feels justified. completely justified. Like, this is what I want. This is what I'll do. These people get in the way, but they're ants, and I will Mm. smash smash the ants. Well, I think what's also smart is to engender, I mean, maybe it's it's, it's a lot harder to write, but try to engender some empathy for the villains as well. Like, um, you know, even for Hans Gruber, we're kind of like, oh, this scheme must have taken a really long time to put together. Yes. Uh, Or you you can admire a villain. Right, yeah. um, You can admire empathy Perfect. Well, it's like word. you're not going to sympathize. No, but not but, sympathy. But Perfect. You can understand well, like, why Roy, they're doing what they're doing. Roy Batty in Blade Runner is a good example of that because all he wants he's a he's a construct and all he wants to know is uh, where when was I born in date and when am I going to die and how can I live longer and that's yeah. all our that's all our, that's all our goals. We're very he was very human in his approach. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a lot of uh, especially sort of off topic but related. Whenever you have a monster or an alien. They're usually the human mm-hmm. because because they embrace all of our human frailties okay. and they and but they but like Roy, Roy Batty they want to know who made me how did I get here is this all the search I am? for life the search for meaning in the universe it's a, it's, it's a universal theme it's V'ger from the first Star Trek film folks go back <laughs> watch it it's a little long but go back and watch it recently through his work with Oddfest a film festival dedicated to the cause of autism awareness. I had the distinct privilege of interviewing legendary actor Ed Asner. Warm, funny, humble, self-effacing, smart. Name any positive adjective and you've got Ed. He's a true American icon in all ways. My thanks to him and his daughter, Liza, whose name I consistently mispronounced, and to my friend and student, Lisa Krasner, who arranged this interview. We're going to play an excerpt now and publish the entire interview on a podcast following this one soon. Here's an excerpt of my interview with the wonderful Mr. Asner. What was your thought when you were asked to do a dramatization of a comedic character? Well, I, uh, I was so braced by the uh, 
care and writing of the uh, producer writers mm-hmm. Mary Todd and Moore that uh, when they wanted to go straight I said well hell they they're geniuses they'll take care of me mm-hmm. that's a great attitude As it turned out they didn't know what the hell they were doing either <laughs> That was just a sampling of this wonderful man's interview. Look for the full interview on a podcast coming soon. All right. On that note, we're going we're gonna to move on to uh, – we had some questions come in. All right. Um, so we had a question from – you want to start with Percival? All right. Let's listen to Percival. All right. This was a call-in. Remember, folks, you can call in and ask us your questions. Hi, Mark. This is Percival calling from Ladera Heights. Uh, you know, I have this idea for a feature, but I don't know where to start. Should I write a treatment first or a premise line? Someone told me I should write an outline and some character bios, or should I just start writing? Uh, I don't know what to do. Uh, any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. So to answer the question, there is no right way to start um, a project. Usually what I do in the intro class is I ask uh, the, the writers to bring in their concepts and then we tentpole it. In other words, we come up with the five or six moments that we're going to go toward. But if you don't, I, I don't know how to answer that because if you have a concept, you have, then you have to create a character. If you have a character, then you have to create a concept. So it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. But if you... Um, if you, if you, let's say you have a concept and you can't figure out a character, what character would lend itself to that concept? Is there a way, like for instance, you want to do uh, a movie about serial killers? Okay, obviously the character is going to be a cop or an FBI agent, or maybe it's a talented amateur. There's just, there's really, it's impossible to answer that question. But um, I mean, with any kind of efficacy, I just don't know how to go with that. But I've started scripts from. I remember. Okay, so I'll tell you a quick story. The fourth script that I wrote, which was the one that kind of got me noticed, was we were talking to a friend, and I had an idea for a script, and he had an idea for a script. And as he described his idea for the script, I saw this image of this guy with a gun at his side and in a doorway, silhouetted, and I said, wow, I'm seeing that character. And actually what we did is we switched concepts. He took mine, I took his. And I wrote a script called Nemesis, which ended up getting made as Sci-Fighters, which... Yeah, it got made. Um, <laughs> but the the thing is, is I came up with the concept, the character first, and then I ended up writing a sci-fi concept around that. So um, the best thing to do is to try to, if you can do some research, sometimes uh, information will come from that research. Sometimes if you just bring it to, if you have a workshop, you can bring it to workshop. We talk a lot about people's ideas uh, in workshop. Sometimes just sitting down and writing it. If you have a, if you have a something that you're passionate about. Sit down and start writing it and figure it out later because there's not, no substitute for that energy uh, yeah. that you get. That, I mean, rewriting it, editing it once it's already on the page or the screen or however you're working is so much better than constantly replaying yeah. it in your head you and thinking, I'm going to write it down perfect <laughs> the first time. I mean, you're not. So mm-hmm. get it out and go, this is terrible, but I can fix this. Or this is not quite what I wanted and I can fix it. But yeah. but. Yeah, I think good. what you mentioned about research is really important. That's when we did we did a, a project in class called Project C, and we just had sort of the concept of witches. We were going to write shorts around uh, witches, and it was going to be an anthology series. And Mark had the idea. Um, you know, he looked up a few different types of witches, and from that point forward, you know, uh, 
you know, you start to look into certain things, certain environments, and then people and characters come from them, and then mm-hmm. it starts sort of the, to build the craft around a uh, character. Yeah, we're going to have to get that. We're going to have to resurrect it, that and get it get it finished. But that was a, that was that's a good example. So, okay, Percival. Sorry, the thing you should do is take my classes. <laughs> But, but also, you need it, personal. Maybe an ear, nose, and throat script, guy might script be writing, scriptwritingclasses.org. Okay. Okay, next question. This is from Patricia. Hi. How can I tell if a story idea is better suited as a feature or TV? I think the there's no answer to that question either. Anything can be a script, a feature, anything can be a TV series. I would have never thought that writing a TV series about a serial killer would be possible. And then Dexter comes up. Now, I have my issues with Dexter, but it's very effective. It was well-written, extremely well done. I don't think 10 years ago you could have done that because that was that would have been an anthema to most uh, TV. Uh, but today's in today's world, you know, you can do just about anything. I don't think there's – I look at Game of Thrones and I think that could be a feature – it could be a wonderful series. Um, you, if you, the thing you have to come up with though for a TV series, the, the biggest consideration is you need to know five years down the road what that series is going to do. So let's say you're writing. There's four or five absolute lay down, easy to write series, and they 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 either run around doctors, lawyers, uh, cops, or attorneys because you can do you can be episodic with yeah. those. You can be one episode. You can have a long-form narrative like The Good Wife where something she's changing over the period of the season, but you actually you don't have to actually know a lot about the five seasons. However, Game of Thrones is not episodic. It's narrative. It's long-form narrative. Uh, Sons of Anarchy is kind of a hybridized version because there would be a little internal story about they need to get guns in order to pay for the, yeah. the thing, but there'd also be... <laughs> This long-form narrative of Jack's Teller trying to find who killed his father and how he's going to react to it. So if you can envision five years' worth of episodes or at least a five-year – like a year-by-year story yeah. arc. And, and by five serious. years' worth of episodes, just to in, in interject, we don't mean you have to think about you have to write 22 it. episodes a season five epi- and know what each one of them are. But to know that there's an arc, there's a destination that we're not going to get to for right. five years. Well, Blue Bloods, you know, they have – they have, I don't know. Did, they, did you watch Blue Bloods? Uh, I don't. My TV doesn't get CBS. Oh, <laughs> well, there's a there's a. Um, Mine does, but I've not watched it. <laughs> there's a there's a. Um, um, Tom Selleck will always be Magnum and nothing else. <laughs> oh, he's good in Blue Bloods, but uh, there's there's a there's a there's it's an episodic TV show, and they have different. It's about a family of cops. So each character has his or her own story in the context of the episode. But there's also the who killed my brother scenario and apparently there's a secret society of cops uh and one of the brothers is being you know uh, recruited is so, that donnie is it donnie no it's the, the youngest one <laughs> oh i only watched the donnie's donnie a hard ass donnie go donnie donnie just walks in and beats people up and uh but he's got other, a lot of anger towards mark his actual brother he's like <laughs> why can't i be as famous yeah there's a lot going on but and then like I just well, I watched uh, Snatch the series Snatch for a while and then but I mean I wouldn't have thought that would have made a great series either based on the movie but they just created a set of characters and it becomes it, again it's a hybridized to a certain extent Pope of Greenwich Village which is one of my favorite movies I could see that as a series but I wouldn't necessarily think it would be as successful yeah so some things I think lend themselves just naturally but if you can't the 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 determiner is if you can't see five years ahead of the, ahead of you, you should not write 
it is. Or potentially you could do a mini series, which I feel like yeah, is what sure. a lot of people yeah. have been doing recently. Like Big Little Lies is a good example of that as well. Like that's that's it's not a longer book, but um, but it could have easily been made into a movie. But then they probably have to eliminate a few characters, yeah. and instead they were like, it's probably best suited for a mini series where they have a start and an end, and there are I think seven episodes overall, and that's been very true for a lot of recent series, um, especially on HBO. I mean, The Night of. Um, you know, there are a few other ones that are out there also, but um, but if you have sort of a start and end, and maybe it makes a bit more sense yeah. to go that route. Um, are animated scripts and live action scripts written the same way? Yes, they're exactly okay, the same. You. Yeah, answered. And that's an answer. Uh, I had heard at one time that animated scripts needed more detail because you were inter- you were instructing the animator, and so there may be more narrative. Uh, but there's a the script for Inside Out is out available. If you look at it, it's ri- it's written just like a feature film. Yeah. There's no absolutely no difference, and uh, so I think it depends uh, on. So my advice to writers about animated films versus that is don't write it as an animated film. Write it as a feature film, but say it's for animation. And if it gets picked up as an animation, fine. If somebody sees it as a feature, that's I mean, Wizard of Oz could have been animated and it has been or it could be that live action yeah. feature film so mm-hmm. so yeah i think there's no difference as far as format as far as i know uh now maybe once the rubber hits the road and they start animating it there's a different format for them but as far as the writing of it it needs to read just like a regular script yeah and again just remember always that format is a way of conveying your story in in a, in a unified communicative way so getting hung up on format you have you need to adhere to format but Mm-hmm. That's why most of the time, write it so it can be read, and then someone else can say, you know, I see this whole thing working as a sock puppet opera. And you say, <laughs> if you have a check, so do I. No problem. Okay. okay. Well, let's move on. Let's uh, talk about um, this week in film history. So this week in film history, so 30 years ago this week, um, Dirty Dancing premiered, mm. so in 1987. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Yeah, written by Eleanor Bergstein um, and starring, of course, Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. It was uh, really in large part taken from Eleanor's own childhood. She was a young daughter of a Jewish doctor and spent her family uh, summers in the Catskills and participated in those dirty dancing competitions. But it's really, you know, it's a love story, but a coming-of-age film as well. And, of course, they fall in love, but... I think it's, I mean, it's so much more, you know, they talk about a lot of different topics um, that are still relevant today, even like the separation of classes, abortion, um, still a pretty hot topic. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times it does get sort of short shrift. It's sort of like, oh, it's a chick flick, a sleepover movie. And I did watch this film at many sleepovers. But um, <laughs> but I really think, I mean, these characters are really, really well written. And, um, and they're great, great characters, you know, to Johnny, to Baby, you know, both strong-minded, idealistic, and... Uh, and really, you know, fight hard for one another. Mm. I I'm a big fan of Dirty Dancing. I, I really, I really love the film, um, mainly because of that ending scene that where they're dancing. Like that's that's that movie is just so much fun to heroic. watch. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's heroic. Like, and even I, they're practicing, and like you know, it's just is so much fun to watch. Well, the what two a, of them. what a tragedy for for Swayze. Yeah, what I would say. You know, I sort of feel like I'll be the voice of dissent. I, I'm not a huge fan of the film, but I have a, an appreciation for it. I, I watched it sort of ironically to make fun of it. And uh, because I was, when that film came out, I was at that age where it was like, no, that's dumb. <laughs> Dancing is dumb. Girls are dumb. And, you know, by that age, I mean 46. You mean, um, you mean last week. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, 
it does actually it really deals like the, the whole abortion thing and everything like yeah holy crap they just they just like slipped this right it, it would sort of be like if in the middle of a hannah montana episode they talked about like a <laughs> uh, you know cancer cancer screening you're right. like well what what well and i read a few articles where they they were telling the screenwriter like you need to take this out like yeah. you need to take that plot wow. line out and, and really, she was like it drives the entire story it, it does and i think it's i think it's really well executed <laughs> because of it. also just as a side note uh, Patrick Swayze, unbridled enthusiasm. I mean, like, uh, to be uh, to be fair to Patrick Swayze, w- whether or not he was the best actor or the best whatever, he never half-assed it or phoned mm-hmm. it in on anything I ever saw. He's all hard. And, and in that, yeah, and it's just like, yeah, you know, um, we could talk about Roadhouse. No, we're not. <laughs> but let's not talk <laughs> let's, about let's Roadhouse. Focus, but another yeah. film, yes. just unbridled enthusiasm. Excellent performance from Jennifer Grey, I think. Um, why why more things didn't happen from yeah, Jennifer Grey based on that performance shocks me. Who's your dad? Who's your dad? Oh, Jerry Orbach. Jerry, Jerry yes. Orbach. Who doesn't love Jerry Orbach? Oh, no. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> I miss it's him. Like, it's, it, and I it's funny because you're like, I mean, I know he's the bad guy, but I see where he's coming from. Right. He makes some good exactly. points. Exactly, empathy for him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. but I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, they always say, I mean, Baby doesn't change, you know, to, to yeah. win over Patrick Swayze. I mean, she's really strong-minded, um, and she she kind of undergoes that transformation as a woman. Yeah. But, um, but for herself, right. not, not to please and somebody exactly. else. Exactly, and it's more so Johnny, Patrick well, Swayze's character, who change, he learns from her, and he, um, you know, he changes kind of his demeanor overall. And so it's um Well, it's she does, she, she, the reason she doesn't do, what she what you're saying is because she learns through the adventure that that's not the way she needs to she is eager to please him in the beginning of the movie and through the middle yeah but does not change because of him which is a lesson that i would love to impart to any young woman because societally we we're we're getting better i think but we're not really embracing that we're not broadcasting that but it's like look you're not you know it's it's difficult to tell people you're not wrong everybody else is wrong but to show it in a story mm-hmm. where, like, look, this is the lesson you, you learn. You're right. Is he falls in love with her generosity and her kindness, you know, her kind of like the inner beauty type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Of course, she's beautiful, but, you know, he falls in love so, with her for So her. is she a feminist? <laughs> I don't know if I'm a feminist, but I am crazy for Swayze. Uh, <laughs> all right. And then uh, uh, what, and what then, else? Uh, I brought uh, the American Werewolf in London. from It was 35 years ago this week as oh, well. So John film. Landis, yeah. yeah, written and directed by him. Um and it was after, uh, like, Animal House and the Blues Brother, and then he wrote sort of this weird comedic horror script. Uh, I saw it once when I was – I was terrified of it. I saw it when I was young. I did not <laughs> understand because, that it was a comedy. That's because of the special effects yeah, that no, won an Academy Award. I, I that, did, yeah. That it was is the, amazing. It was the first Oscar winner for Best Makeup, yeah. Um, and so I, I remember – I didn't understand until much later that it was a comedy. <laughs> um, yeah. but, well, it's comedic. Uh, it, it is, it right, sorry, ending, exactly, yeah. yeah, it's more of a darker comedy, yeah, yeah but um, but it's, yeah, pretty gruesome. I, I think it might be, um, in, in my book, I mean, I love the Blues Brothers, but I think it might be Landis' best film because it is his most uh, consistently, like, well-executed film. Like, his comedy often goes ridiculously too far. In that film, I think it really... It's it's dark comedy. It's mm-hmm. credible, and also just from a, 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 a from an editorial and filmmaking standpoint, it doesn't waste a second. Yeah, it's, it's very crazily well done. efficient. It's not it's not a long film. It's not a bloated film. You can sometimes, if you have a moment while you're watching it, you'll sort of realize, holy crap, we're this far into it. It's 45 minutes, and mm-hmm. all this stuff has already happened. And and I, I think it's just a and great it kind film. of reminded me like as, I mean because it really does blend. I mean yeah, it's darker laughs, but the scares and the gore, and it's like. 
there are a lot of movies that are like that too that are like scream is very much like that like i always think like i always tell people i love scream i think it's hilarious hilarious and they're always like what are you talking about i'm like no that movie is really it's, funny well, because it pokes, um, it pokes fun exactly at yeah, yeah. Um, so it seems like fright night and the lost boy i mean they, they, all those movies do a good job of really blending all of those kind of uh, those genres um mm. for making you know a really good movie yeah. Yeah. great great selections Both, of, yeah. yeah actually if i can just tack in um uh it's a. Uh, it's definitely this week in movie history, but it's it's just it happened this morning. I heard it on the way over. Toby Hooper died. For the uninitiated, Toby Hooper created um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, regardless of if you're a horror film fan or not, it it is impossible to to, to overstate. Yeah. It would be impossible to overstate that film's contribution to the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was definitely Ridley Scott actually said that no film was more influential uh, as a genre for Alien. Than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and and once you know something like that, you can watch Alien and recognize Toby Hooper was uh, mid seventies. He wasn't a young, young he wasn't a young guy, but he was yeah, he, too he was too young to go. Uh, he did a lot of great stuff. He's real big in genre. He was a writer as well as a filmmaker, so he definitely wore both hats. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a fantastic <coughs> film. Uh, it's been copied <laughs> so many times in in varying degrees of success. And, uh, and just another reminder that we have to remember that uh, we we all s- sit and stand and ride on the shoulders oh, of giants. And if you don't know who Toby Hooper is, you're familiar with the people who ripped him off shamelessly. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, now, did this predate Halloween? Did oh yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. Yeah. So basically, all the slasher films have at their core uh, Toby Hooper. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. To thanks. So, yeah. Also. I mean, there's some there's some uh, controversy, but he did uh, Poltergeist, mm. which is a fantastic. It's a horror movie that's PG and it's really good and it really will scare the crap out of yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if there are any rules to podcasts. My understanding is it's a pretty wide open form for just about anything. For this podcast specifically, the only mandate I had was that it be about mostly writing instead of things like acting and production. For this podcast, I'm going to ask for the indulgence of you, our audience, and my co-hosts. I'd like to talk about my mom and bring that around to a point about the arts. My mom's 89. She's a Greatest Generation member. I was her firstborn, and then she had three girls and a boy after that. Her and my blue-collar father raised us in a small town with love. We are all still very close. When I was 19-ish, I quit college and decided to become a musician. My father was furious. He saw me pursuing law or medical profession. His dreams for me were always white-collar since he himself had grown up poor and struggled all his life. To say he was disappointed would be like saying that Hillary was okay that Trump won the election. I heard all the gloom and doom he could muster. He truly hated the idea of me quitting college to pursue music. I don't think he ever recovered. But my mom was okay with it. Instead of chastising me, she celebrated my independent thinking, not following a safe course. Herself a singer and artist in college, perhaps she saw her aborted dreams in me. She was and is a free spirit with a practical mind, sort of like an adult version of Peter Pan, who knows that it's cool to fly, but that we all need to touch the ground once in a while. At the time, I played guitar, but I wanted to play keyboards instead. I had an acoustic piano at home, but nothing that I could take on stage, and back there there were not many choices for electric keyboards, and they were all outrageously expensive. Money I didn't have, and my father wouldn't give me or loan me. I asked my mom about what I could do. She said she'd help with the money if I got most of it myself. I figured two-thirds from me, one-third from her. Good deal. Instead, I repaid her confidence by working three jobs to buy the keyboard I needed on my own. 
Just knowing she was there motivated me beyond what I had thought possible. But then I couldn't pull together the funds for anything else, and we were gigging in less than a month. When it came time to buy some real sound equipment and not just run the mics through the guitar amps, my mom co-signed a loan that the local banker said was nuts. I paid it back in less than 60 days because I just wanted to shove those words up that banker's vault and prove to my mom that her faith in me would always be repaid. When I moved to California for my musical career, which then became my writing career, Elaine, my mom, was nothing but a ray of positivity, even as everyone was said I was insane. She saw my dreams, knew what they meant, maybe with more clarity than I ever did. When I moved to Cali for my musical career, which then became my writing career, Elaine, my mother, was nothing but a ray of positivity, even as everyone said I was insane. She saw my dreams, knew what they meant, maybe with more clarity than I ever did. At some point, she actually followed me here, as did most of my family, so I guess I wasn't that nuts. At the time, I wasn't doing well financially. It was a struggle to pay rent. I had no car, using a bicycle to pedal to work at Sears Surplus. My mom assessed the situation and decided to pull two of my sisters and me into a co-owned house. Once again, this time as adults, we would live together and support each other, paying less rent than we would have had to pay individually. It was a brilliant plan, even though we fought like the kings of Leon. But this was crucial for me since it allowed me to work part-time while I went back to school to take writing classes and pursue another quote-unquote pipe dream. The house provided love, a car when I needed it to attend meetings, clothing and food. I mean, try telling an Italian mother you're eating enough. That part of their brain that comprehends the words I'm not hungry or I'm full is genetically missing. For two plus years, I was able to learn and write. My first script was sold in year three of this house experiment for $30,000. I gave my mom all of it except for a few thousand to buy a car. I don't know what anyone's situation is. I know how hard it must be to work and write or to work and pursue other dreams. And I know without my mother's help, a woman has almost ever, never said no to me. I could never be the writer I am. The podcast, This podcast itself would not be possible without her because my path would have never led me here. If this all sounds a little bit like an obituary, it is. Mom's very ill. We don't expect her to make it much longer. And although I've mourned for her loss year, for years because she has dementia, she's still physically been here. That is sadly quickly coming to a close. But she will live on as long as I do because of one lesson above all she taught me. If you watched the movie The Founder about Ray Kroc and McDonald's, and we talked about it here, you might remember a scene where he puts on a motivational record, quoting from the movie on the record, Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educational derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are, alone are omnipotent. My mother never said no to me, but she also always said that I'd have to earn the yes, and I've, and I've always tried to do that. I've never taken hers or anyone's support for granted. I always thought that was her greatest gift to me, the conditional yes, but the founder brought something else clearly into focus. When I was in eighth grade, I was halfway through a science fair project about the space program. It was too hard. I was frustrated building all the models I needed. The year before, I had displayed a cow's heart to underwhelming enthusiasm. This year, I was determined to do better except that I wasn't, determined that is, I was ready to give up. My mom wouldn't let me. She didn't offer to build anything, but she helped me provide by providing the natural enthusiasm and wonderful suggestions she always had. She sat in the kitchen with me while I worked and talked, while I built model after model in balsa wood, then painted and did the other hundred things necessary to tell the amazing story of American in space. My science fair project won best in state that year, the highest I could have gone. The first person I looked for coming off that stage was with my trophy was my mom. She was there, beaming. 
I told her at the time she deserved the award as much as I did, but the truth is she probably deserved it more. I'm a hard worker. I seek perfection. I don't make or try not to make excuses for failure. And all these traits have the concept of persistence at their core. I see that now. But it wasn't until I saw the founder this week that I realized where that came from in me. My wish is for everyone to have someone like my mother in their lives, family, friend, teacher, someone always to say yes, but with conditions, someone to teach them the lessons necessary to fight the good fight and buoy them when things get overwhelming, someone to show them that the most important trait you can engender for any situation and any dream is persistence. Only you can tell yourself no. Thank God I had someone who made it clear that that wasn't acceptable. I've been successful despite myself because of one person. Thanks, Elaine Sevy, Mom, for being my motivational record all my life. For me, it's been an unreserved joy because of you. And I promise I will always be paying forward those lessons you taught me with persistence. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Plot Points Podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. Please let us know what you think about the show. You can reach us at 919scripts or you can reach us at the plotpoints.com website. And as you've heard in this week's episode, if you ask us a good question in the voicemail, you might just end up in the show. Anyway, thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Take care.